Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. From CAFE, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. They had rights and they balanced it with security and safety. That's a pretty good principle to keep up with, but it's really hard to draw lasting lessons from these long ago debates that they had. One hopes never to use them, but one loves to possess arms. The argument that the Second Amendment reflected not what judges and scholars had thought for two centuries that it meant, which was the militias and this collective right. The people who started arguing just about 30 years ago that, no, 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 this is an individual right, they went back and they kind of ransacked the history. That's Michael Waldman, president of the Brennan Center for Justice. He's the author of several books over the years that speak to where we are right now, including a biography of the Second Amendment, a collection of presidential rhetoric, and a history of voting rights in America. Before that, he wrote speeches for President Bill Clinton. Michael and I discuss what the founders and the Supreme Court say about the right to bear arms, the rise of the NRA as a political force, and voter fraud, or lack thereof. But first, let's get to your questions. That's coming up. Stay tuned. As a dad, I understand it can be challenging to talk to your kids about gun violence. You want them to feel safe, and you also want to make sure they understand what's going on. Recently, Diane Rinaldo from the New York chapter of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America appeared in a podcast produced by CAFE's parent company, Some Spider. The podcast is called Scary Mommy Speaks, and this episode in particular gives insights on how to talk to your kids and how to take action. It's an inspiring look at this urgent issue. So please check out the special edition episode of Scary Mommy Speaks on gun violence wherever you listen to podcasts. Before I get to your questions, I have some news. Stay Tuned is going back on tour. We'll be in multiple cities this fall, including Denver on October 24th with Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action, Detroit on November 12th with Dana Nessel, the Attorney General of the state of Michigan, and in Atlanta on December 4th with my friend and former acting U.S. Attorney General, Sally Yates. Head to cafe.com slash tour for tickets. That's cafe.com slash tour. Hi, Preet. This is Ben calling from Australia. I listen to your show every week, and I've read your book. I have a legal question. It is about part two of the Mueller report. Can there be obstruction of justice if there's no proven underlying crime? Lawyers Alan Dershowitz and Senator Lindsey Graham seem to have suggested that they cannot. Thanks, and keep up the good work. Thanks, Ben, for your question and calling all the way from Australia. This is a question that keeps coming up, and I've addressed it before along with Ann Milgram. And it's just not correct. The Dershowitz and Senator Graham view, to the extent they're suggesting there needs to be proof of an underlying crime, it's just not correct. As we lawyers say, there's black letter law to the contrary, which means there's a clear basis for rejecting that point of view. And if you think about it, it makes common sense. The idea that there must be a provable underlying crime before you can bring an obstruction case relating to interference with the investigation of that underlying crime is nonsensical. That would mean then that if you're successful enough 
in obstructing the investigation into some crime, let's say murder, a campaign finance violation or some other such thing, to the extent you're successful at obstructing it so that prosecutors can't charge that crime, you can never be charged for obstruction either. So it actually incentivizes people to be obstructors and to be effective obstructors if you buy that point of view. So it doesn't work as a matter of law because there's case after case after case that virtually every prosecutor in America has brought on obstruction grounds where there was no underlying case that was able to be brought. It happens all the time, and common sense would say it's silly too. So let's put that to rest. Hi, Preet and crew. Love the show. Thanks very much. I'm Steve. I'm calling from Bloomington, Indiana. Everyone I know is asking why the ice raids in Mississippi did not have anything to do with the owners of the facilities. We seem to remember that there were once laws to punish employers who hired vast numbers like this and mechanisms put in place so that employers could find out if potential hires were legal or not. Please let us know what's up with all that. Thank you very much. Steve, thanks for your question. Ann Milgram and I discussed this at some length on the Cafe Insider podcast this week, and the reason that lots of people are talking about it and lots of people are asking the question about employers is because it's a good question. Uh, There are various ways you can enforce laws and various ways you can enforce the immigration laws. You know, one article of faith among people who engage in law enforcement and understand the power of deterrence is that you go to the top of the food chain, not the bottom of the food chain. And if there are employers who were willfully blind about hiring people without documentation or uh, knowingly hired people without documentation so that they could take advantage of low labor rates, they could take advantage of exploitation of people who they might not have been treating well, and do all sorts of other things to increase their bottom line, the best place to look is to the employers. That's been a feature of comprehensive immigration reform that was proposed going back to when I was working in the Senate in 2006 and 2007. In fairness to the administration, the things that I've heard coming out of the mouths of officials at the Department of Homeland Security is that they are absolutely looking at the employers there as well, and the investigation is ongoing. It is odd that you would first round up hundreds and hundreds of people who have no documentation at these poultry plants and not simultaneously be doing something with respect to holding accountable the employers. Now, as Ann and I also discussed on Monday, there is some argument that in certain kinds of cases, it may be difficult to prove the intent of the employer. You know, they say, we went to a third-party service and we were told that the potential employees were legally in the country. You know, when you have this kind of scale of undocumented workers, it flies in the face of logic and reason that nobody knew anything about anything. And as I said again, there is something called willful blindness, a doctrine in the law that allows you to prove intent by showing that someone basically willfully looked the other way. It doesn't always work. It can work. depends on the facts and circumstances of the case. One of my former colleagues in the U.S. attorney community made another good point, which is, you know, if they're really looking carefully at the employers, you might think about doing those charges first so as not to tip them off. Now, it might also be the case that some of the folks uh, who were employed could become witnesses against the employers and could state what representations they made and what the knowledge was on the part of employers that they didn't have documentation in the United States. And so maybe that's part of building the case. I'm sort of going to wait and see. But if you don't see any action, despite the really, really tough rhetoric and talk and anti-immigrant verbiage coming out of the administration, at the same time that no employer ever suffers any consequence or ever faces accountability, then you know there's a significant amount of hypocrisy going on and ineffective immigration enforcement. And then the last point I would make that a lot of people are also alluding to is the fact that it seems like some Trump businesses have also been taking advantage of employees uh, who are not lawfully in the country. And although that might be something pervasive that goes on in lots of businesses around the country, 
it's another example of rank hypocrisy. If you're going to talk tough and you're going to walk tough and you're going to degrade the idea of immigration and immigrants in this country, particularly from certain parts of the world, then you better be clean in your own house too. Hi, Preet and Ann. Uh, this is Buddy Stein from Jupiter, Florida. Love the show. Love the book. Regarding Mr. Epstein, since he is now deceased, I wanted to know if the attorney-client privilege still exists between him and his criminal attorney. If he perhaps said to his criminal attorney, yeah, I did it, or this is what I did, can his attorney now come forward and say, here's what Jeffrey Epstein said to me? Thank you, Preet. Thanks for the question, buddy. Uh, it's a good question. The answer is the attorney-client privilege persists even in death. The right to waive the attorney-client privilege rests with the client, not with the attorney. And you can imagine there are good principal jurisprudential reasons why the privilege should persist. Because even though the client is deceased, as in the case of Jeffrey Epstein, there are things that he might have discussed with a lawyer, anybody might discuss with a lawyer, that if prosecutors or others could pry from the lawyers might implicate the estate or other people associated with the deceased. And so the attorney-client privilege, which is you know the most sacrosanct privilege in many ways in the law, remains. But the other thing that's also true is that the same exceptions that apply in life also apply in death. So there's something that people have been talking about with respect to Michael Cohen in, in months past called the crime fraud exception. So if there are communications that were in pursuit of committing some crime or assisting in some crime between a person and his or her lawyer, you can pierce that if you can make a proper showing and prosecutors can compel testimony about that information and about those communications and maybe even receive documentation of those communications under the crime fraud exception, which may or may not be applicable here. We just don't know. This question comes from a tweet from listener Miriam Hill, who writes, inspired by your show, especially the one with Brian Stevenson. I was too. I'm considering getting a degree in law. Is it too late to do that in middle age? What advice do you have about where to go? Hashtag Aspreet. It is never too late. People change careers midstream. Lots of people change careers from the law to something outside the law. I'm at the moment not practicing. I'm teaching, writing, doing these podcasts. My brother was a practicing lawyer, left the practice of law. There's nothing that says you can't go from some other career into the law. So if you're inspired, I think the most important thing to do is go with your inspiration. There's a lot of need and continues to be, and maybe even more now than ever before, for good lawyers. And also, I would dare say, lawyers who have some experience outside of the law, who have lived life, who have some perspective, whatever your current career is, I would absolutely urge you to go. I don't have any particular advice about where to go. I'm partial to the law school I went to and the law school I teach at, which are both in New York. Um, go to some place where you'll have fun, but any place you think you can get a first-class education and some training and craft so that you can practice law in a way that hopefully, given that your reason for this is inspiration from Brian Stevenson, that you'll do some public interest law. So I would pay attention to what kinds of clinics the law schools you're applying to have so you can begin to perfect that craft even before you leave law school. Good luck. So as you might imagine, many, many questions this past week about guns, about gun reform, about mass shootings, and about the Second Amendment itself. For example, there was a tweet from Sean Duncan, who asks, can we have an analysis of what happened to diminish the well-regulated militia part of the Second Amendment to the individual? Aditi Chang writes, love your show, listening to you and Anne discuss gun rights on the Insider Clip. My question is this, is the right to own a gun more sacrosanct than the right to stay alive at school, at a mall, at work, at a park? There's another question from listener Olivier G., from Paris, not Texas. 
Why can't the average U.S. citizen possess a nuclear weapon or two or 50? All good questions and all very resonant and relevant this week, but I'm not going to answer them. Instead, listen to my interview with Michael Waldman, who's an expert on all these things and answers a lot of these questions and more. My guest this week is Michael Waldman. He was director of speech writing for President Bill Clinton from 1995 to 1999, responsible for nearly 2,000 speeches, including both inaugurals and four State of the Union addresses. He's also an author of several books, including a volume on presidential rhetoric, the history of the Second Amendment, and the fight for voting rights, topics that are extremely relevant in 2019. He is president of the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU School of Law, a nonpartisan policy institute. Michael is also a friend and colleague. As you may know, I have been working closely with Michael and others at the Brennan Center on the National Task Force on the Rule of Law and Democracy. That interview is coming up. Stay tuned. Stay tuned is supported by Bombas. Want to know what was cool when I was in school? Back to the Future, Return of the Jedi, Joan Jett, and The Cure. Now the coolest things in school are Bombas socks. Bombas are the most comfortable kid socks ever. Designed with several comfort innovations that help make them feel better than any kid socks ever made. And they're colorful, like bursting with color. They even have a colorful little bee on them. When I first told my family about these great socks, it turned out they already had bright, colorful Bombas on their feet. And since Bombas donates a pair of socks for every pair purchased, you should get some for yourself, too. So send your kids back to school with Bombas, the socks that will keep them comfy, colorful, and ready to take on the school year. Visit bombas.com slash preet and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash preet for 20% off your first purchase. Bombas.com slash preet. Michael Waldman, welcome to the show. It's great to be with you. So indulge me for a moment in saying how pleased I am that you're on the show. We go back a long ways, actually, and work together to this very day on issues that are important to democracy. The uh, Task Force on Democracy that I co-chair with Christy Todd Whitman is done through the Brennan Center for Justice, of which you were the president. So thank you for helping to save democracy. I guess uh, maybe I need something else on my resume. <laughs> it's a fight well worth fighting, and it's been great to work with you on all these things ever since... I first saw you fighting against voter suppression at the Justice Department. No, and even even before that, which we'll come to a little later in, in the talk, this myth of, of voter fraud, where when I was working for Senator Schumer in the Senate, we did a hearing through the Rules Committee on just these questions. I remember working a lot with you and other folks on your team at the Brennan Center, and those myths still persist. Um, so something that's been on everyone's mind a lot since the shootings in El Paso and in Dayton, you know, at the Gilroy Garlic Festival guns. You are an expert on a lot of things. As I often say, Michael Waldman is a gentleman and a scholar, but a scholar of multiple issues. You wrote a book about five years ago called The Second Amendment, A Biography. And I want to get into, because we get a lot of questions about this, and it's good to have an expert on the origins of the Second Amendment, what the debate was like, what does it actually mean based on the words in it? How has it come to mean something different? What is the role of the NRA? But before we get to any of that, you have often pointed to a quote from Lincoln that you like, and I like it too. It's something that he said in debating slavery in 1858. Lincoln said, public sentiment is everything. With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. Now, it seems to me that there has been for a while now public sentiment in favor 
of certain kinds of restrictions on guns and, and common sense gun reforms. That has not translated into any kind of action. What do you make of public sentiment where it is now in connection with the gun debate? You're right that the general and broad public sentiment is strongly for common sense gun laws of the kind that we're familiar with that have not been able to pass, like expanded and universal background checks and things like that. Public opinion really has shifted somewhat on guns, and this was part of how we got this new interpretation of the Second Amendment. If you look 20, 30, 40 years ago, there was really wide public support for what we would regard as really strict gun laws. And then over time, that receded. It sort of came along with people's general distrust of government. What's happened in the last few years, and really in the last two or three years, is the public is again much more open than it has been to pretty strong action on guns. But the problem for those who want stronger gun laws has always been that support for gun restrictions or gun safety restrictions is broad but shallow. And the NRA and gun rights supporters, who are a smaller and smaller segment of the population, are very intense. Only uh, 3% of Americans own half the guns in the United States. And the NRA, it claims to have a few million members, although, you know, who knows what the real story is. But that's way fewer than AARP or a lot of other very powerful interest groups. But it's the intensity. It's the fact that they will vote you out of office if they can that has given them unusual strength. What do you think of the intensity of sentiment on the other side in the wake of Parkland and actually going back to Newtown? When the Newtown massacre happened right after the 2012 election, it came after a period in which basically Barack Obama never mentioned the issue of guns and never did anything on the subject except for actually signing a law that loosened federal law a little bit. Democrats at that point had had a muscle memory that they needed to stay away from the issue. And beginning with Newtown, there began to be a change, um, especially seeing the mass shootings and the terror attacks that come with it. And over time, I think you can trace from that really awful day in 2012 to now considerable growing strength for support for action on guns. I really thought that the Parkland uh, students were a real breakthrough because they were a new generation of people who just weren't going to put up with a lot of the same compromises maybe that their elders did. And, you know, just like with environmental issues or marriage equality, sometimes you can have kind of a, uh, when you leap generations, suddenly the public opinion can shift. So I think there's a, a change. And, you know, a lot of Democrats believed, Bill Clinton believed, that the Democrats lost the House in 1994 because they passed an assault weapons ban. It's not clear that it's really true, but they really believe that. Probably didn't help them. It did not help them. Right. And Al Gore, a lot of people believe, lost states Democrats had previously won because of the gun issue. Hillary Clinton began talking about gun safety in an unapologetic way for the first time. Um, now, maybe that hurt her in a lot of the red counties that she unexpectedly did worse relative to Trump. But I think that the politics of this is shifting a lot, and you can see it in the candidates and how they're talking about it now. So when people are down and depressed and were after Newtown, because in the aftermath of that really, really, you know, among the range of horrible tragedies, unspeakable, given how many young, small children there were, the fact that there wasn't immediate legislation passed or an immediate movement to change things has gotten a lot of people down. You're not as pessimistic because you think that all these things gather force over time. And when we look back on this point in history, 20, 30, 40 years from now, 
do you think it really was a, a shifting of the ground? I really do think it's a shifting of the ground. It just doesn't happen immediately. I mean, remember after Newtown, they brought a bipartisan universal background check bill to the floor of the Senate. It had support of 90% of the public. And it was defeated not because it didn't have public support or even a it had a majority in the Senate, but because of the filibuster. And I think they kind of have to keep at it and keep at it. And you're seeing in the reaction to these shootings, which seem to have broken through in a way, partly because the one would never want to call something an everyday run-of-the-mill mass shooting. But in El Paso, you had not just a mass shooting with the same weapon of war that is used in so many of these other ones, but very clearly a political terror attack linked to anti-immigrant sentiment, linked to white supremacy, and linked to a lot of the rhetoric from the president that has really cracked through a lot of the logjam here. And I, I would bet that there will be some action, but it may not happen right away. It didn't happen, obviously, on all these other tough, tough issues in American history. Can we go back about 228 years <laughs> to the Second Amendment, which I believe was adopted in 1791? Do I have that right? Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. You didn't know there was going to be a quiz. That's the kind of bar bet I used to lose before I had <laughs> the internet. I'm told it was 1791. Let's look at the text of the Second Amendment, and then I'm going to ask you a lot of questions about it. The Second Amendment says, quote, A well-regulated militia, being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. What did that mean at the time it was adopted? Well, that's the thing, is it is really hard for us to put ourselves back in the minds of the people then, let alone to try to make constitutional decisions now or public policy decisions now based on our misunderstanding, perhaps, of what happened back then. At that time, the militias were a really, really important part of the new country. Uh, that part of the Amendment, the first part about the well-regulated militia, was really important to the colonists and to the new revolutionary nation. But they were not like anything any of us have now. Every white adult man from age 16 up was required to be in the militia and was required by law to own a gun and keep it at home and bring the gun in for your military service. This is like the Minutemen at Lexington and right. Concord. So they had AK-47s, AR-15s? They had, you Back know, then, right? uh, bazookas and uh, <laughs> low-grade nukes. No, they had these muskets that... Muskets. ...missed most of the time. Right. They were military weapons. And they were hard to reload. They were hard to reload and not very effective. They rusted easily, um, and they were dangerous to own, let alone to use. But the people thought the militias were this bulwark against tyranny. They were really, really focused on the danger of what they called a standing army. In other words, a, an army of paid soldiers, just like the Redcoats. And when the Constitution was written, it did not bar having a standing army as a lot of people wanted. And there was a huge controversy when it was released and when the states had to ratify the Constitution. And one of the big concerns that people had was this new strong central government would crush the militias of bring it your weapon from home citizen, citizen farmer soldiers. And one of the purposes of the Second Amendment was to make sure that these militias couldn't be crushed. And in fact, when James Madison introduced the Bill of Rights, um, a number of the states had said, we want a Bill of Rights as our condition, in effect, for, for ratifying the Constitution. Madison, who 
was not actually for there being a Bill of Rights. He was the guy who had written the Constitution and wrote the Federalist Papers to argue for why it was okay. But in order to get elected to Congress himself in his own congressional district, he had to come out for there being a Bill of Rights. His original version of the Second Amendment made it very clear what its purpose was. It had a conscientious objector clause. It said, uh, well-regulated militia, the right to keep and bear arms. But if you don't want to do your military service in person, you can get somebody else to do it for you. It was clearly about this military system. So if we were to go back in a time machine, people ask me, so does uh, the Second Amendment reflect an individual right or the militias? I was going to get there. You know, it's sort of both and neither. It, it reflects an individual right to fulfill the duty to serve in the militia. Our, our question would mean nothing would be baffling to the founders, just like their answer really is kind of baffling to us. We can't really go back and draw that many lessons from it, except for this. It was always about public safety. There were always guns. There were lots of guns. People had a right to defend their home. But there were gun laws all the way through. At the time of the Second Amendment, um, everything from it was illegal to keep a gun in Boston in, in your home, a loaded gun, because they tended to blow up and burn down the neighborhood. In Pennsylvania and other states, they had a registry of guns, and they actually at one point recalled all the guns in the state because they needed to check and see who had their military weapons. One of the things I learned about after I worked on this book which, you know, I regret not knowing it at the time, was in 1824, I think. I'm very prepared, Michael. I, I, have, I have the tweet. Excellent. That you sent a year and a half ago, where you tweeted, Second Amendment, Madison and Jefferson voted to ban guns from the University of Virginia campus, 1824. Too dangerous, they thought. The Constitution is no bar to sane gun laws and policies. That's interesting. Yeah, no, they didn't think this was a massive violation of gun rights to say you couldn't bring... It actually literally says... The policies of the University of Virginia, there were eight people on the Board of Regents. One of the others, I think, was John Jay. It wasn't like they were ceremonially signing on to something. And it says, we're banning guns and swords from campus, presumably because <laughs> the people were dueling, you know, or something like that. They didn't think that having a, a law like that, a rule like that, violated gun rights. Now, you know, there were a lot of guns, and they were using guns to keep slaves from rebelling. It's not like it was some pristine time. But all throughout American history, gun rights and strong laws have gone hand in hand. It is true that people get it wrong when they say the Second Amendment is about hunting. Some people like certain kinds of weapons, and they say they use them for hunting. But the real debate going back to the founding is about public safety and about tyranny, correct? It's about public safety and about tyranny. It was political. Ironically, in a way, military weapons were more like what they had back at the time of the Second Amendment than for hunting. It's just that the founders, when they wrote the Second Amendment, did not necessarily think that everybody could be their own militia and decide for themselves what gun to have or, or who to shoot it up. I mean, they, they had the Constitutional Convention because of Shays' Rebellion, which was a rebellion in western Massachusetts by farmers who didn't want to pay the debts that they owed. And it was pretty clear to them and then to George Washington later when he was president that from now on the militias were organized by the government, not sort of today's version of uh, radical right activists. So I want to go back to this point that you raised about whether the Second Amendment confers an individual right or some collective right. Because a lot rides on that answer. 
And so if you go back to the text, yes, certainly it says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That's there. It gets overlooked a little bit in, in modern times. But it does say the right of the people to keep and bear arms. Is there not something in that phraseology of the people to keep and bear arms that suggests an individual right? Yeah. I mean, this was they were not only thinking that some government office somewhere would have the guns, but again... And we have to try to transport ourselves back into a time where there was basically a universal military draft for an entire adulthood for white men, and they were required to own a gun and bring it in. And that was seen as a power of the people. I did look at the way the phrase the people was used in the ratification conventions, and it was doing the research for this book on the Second Amendment it was so amazing because they wrote down or transcribed. They didn't have C-SPAN. They didn't have tape recorders, but so much of it was transcribed, whether it's Madison's notes from the Constitutional Convention or the very public debate in the ratification conventions in places like Virginia. When they talked about the people, typically what they meant was the body politic. And there's even a question, a lot of the latter-day gun rights advocates, including Justice Scalia, when he wrote about this, say, well, bear arms, that means carry... Bear means carry, and that means it must be small enough to carry around, so therefore that must mean it is a pistol, and they use dictionaries. But it is clearly the case when you look at all the uses of the phrase bear arms in the colonial and revolutionary and constitutional era, what that meant was military service. And it's very interesting. There are two professors from, from Utah law professors from Utah, I believe from Brigham Young, who were for the individual right. And then they did a linguistic analysis and realized bare arms was a term of art, meaning serve in the military. Again, I think that we're forced to be spending this time kind of like parsing what did James Madison's notes mean and what did the discarded letter that some guy wrote to another guy mean to figure out what our constitutional rights mean today. And basically no other country in the world would dream of doing it that way. Ultimately, the basic principle, which was they had rights and they balanced it with security and safety, that's a pretty good principle to keep up with. But it's, it's really hard to draw lasting lessons from these long ago debates that they had. And you point out in the book and elsewhere some other sort of funny misrepresentations of statements made by important historical figures. Like, for example, and I think they put this on a T-shirt from time to time, Thomas Jefferson's words to George Washington in the 1796 letter where Thomas Jefferson says, one loves to possess arms. One hopes never to use them, but one loves to possess arms. And the argument that the Second Amendment reflected not what judges and scholars had thought for two centuries that it meant, which was the militias and this collective right. The people who started arguing just about 30 years ago that, no, 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 this is an individual right, they went back and they looked at all the history and they kind of ransacked the history and they pulled, a lot of them, pulled quotes out of context like people who wrote movie posters. A bad review, but you find the positive word and you <laughs> right. put it on the poster. It's okay to do that with book reviews. Book reviews, that, yes. <laughs> blur, blur, and blurbs are good too. Um, but uh, there were law review articles and many of them, it turned out, were paid for by the NRA who were trying to move public opinion on this have quotes like that quote from Thomas Jefferson, uh, one loves to possess arms, but one hopes never to use them. And it's sort of, aha, look at that. And you can see all these scholars getting very excited about this. If you look at the actual letter, he was writing to George Washington. He said, remember when I was Secretary of State, I gave you that batch of letters on that controversial decision? 
can I have them back? I think I'm going to get criticized for this. And I want to have them in reserve. One loves to possess arms, though one hopes never to have to use them. It was, it was a metaphor. And there are some, For having arguments. For having letters in, in his drawer that he wanted to use to rebut somebody who was criticizing him. The quote from Patrick Henry, the great object is let every man be armed. That was kind of the, the book that was the scholarly book that they all have relied on. It has the title, Let Every Man Be Armed. And the Patrick Henry professorship at George Mason Law School is, is funded by the NRA. And you can see it on T-shirts. And you can see it when the Supreme Court eventually ruled on this. There was a banner in front of the Supreme Court saying, Patrick Henry, the great, you know, give me liberty or give me death. Let every man be armed. But once upon a time, I guess you needed a, a library card at the Library of Congress to look this stuff up. But it's all on the Internet now. It was from the ratification convention in Virginia. James Madison is there defending the Constitution line by line, and Patrick Henry is opposing the Constitution. And Patrick Henry says, what about this militia provision? They're going to disarm our militia. And Madison says, no, no, no. He makes it up on the spot. He says, no, this is both the state of Virginia and the federal government have a, both have a duty to arm the militia. And Patrick Henry says, What? Both of us, both the federal government and the state have a duty to arm the militia. Do you know how expensive that is? Two sets of doubloons, two sets of vests and bullets. The great object is let every man be armed, but only once. Right. So it was rather than being some cry of freedom, it was a local politician complaining about wasteful spending by Washington <laughs> when it was actually Washington himself, not Washington, the, the town. So, you know, there's a lot of – everybody goes back and plucks these, these uh, founding father gotcha quotes, and it's hard to not do the same thing. But the history is not what the NRA says it was. So let's summarize a couple of things. Your analysis has been that there's nothing to indicate at the time of the debate or in the language of the amendment that it's an individual right. We'll come to the Heller decision more recently later, which undoes some of that. But also – based not just on your UVA fine from 1824, but also in other aspects too, it has always been true under the Second Amendment, no matter what you think of it, that significant gun regulation is permitted, okay, and wise. Both are right. If you look at Madison's notes from the Constitutional Convention, you look at the debate on the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives where they marked up and wrote the Second Amendment in public. If you look at the records of almost universally of the ratification conventions for the Constitution. There's not a word about the Second Amendment reflecting an individual right to gun ownership for hunting or self-protection or anything other than service in the militia. They had guns. They felt they had a right to have the guns, but it was always in the context of public safety. And that really, that dual set of values really is what happened throughout the rest of the country's history. We had, obviously, guns. They spread. But there were always gun rules and gun laws. And one of my favorites is we think of the Wild West and Dodge City as kind of the archetypal Wild West town. And there's a photo from Dodge City. I think it's in the 1870s. And it looks like a movie set. It looks like the back lot at Universal Studios' Wild West town. It's dusty Main Street. And there's saloons on either side. And there's posts for the horses. And in the middle is a sign that says, Welcome to Dodge City. Firearms prohibited. They understood right. that there were dangers. And for two centuries, 
there were debates about gun laws, but it was understood that the Second Amendment did not recognize some kind of unlimited individual right to gun ownership. Richard Nixon's chief justice that he appointed, Warren Burger, a rock-ribbed conservative, said that the idea that the Second Amendment represented an unlimited individual right to gun ownership was a, quote, fraud on the American people. So that, that seems a long time ago. It does. So then what happens, both through scholarship and perhaps the NRA, in recent decades, there has been sort of a shifting, as you've been describing, of a certain constituency's view of the Second Amendment, which then kind of culminates in the Heller decision. How did that come about? It's an amazingly, I think, a really interesting story of how constitutional change, how legal change, policy change really happens in this country, because it goes back to that quote you mentioned from Abraham Lincoln, that public sentiment is everything. About 40 years ago, the NRA and other gun rights advocates launched a constitutional campaign to change what people thought the Second Amendment meant. The NRA has been around since right after the Civil War. It was originally for training and marksmanship, for military preparedness. Then it kind of became known as the voice of hunters and sportsmen. And, right. and they used to support all manner of gun regulations. Right. When there was a federal law in the 1930s to deal with the, the assault weapons of their day, which were Tommy guns, which were used by bank robbers using that newfangled technology, the getaway car, and they passed a federal law, the NRA testified and was asked, can you think of any constitutional provision that might affect this? And they said, no, we can't think of any. Right. Um, <laughs> it's a long time ago. Long time ago. And the Supreme Court ruled repeatedly the same way. But the NRA really launched itself in a different direction. And it was, again, it was about politics. The NRA in the mid-1970s, the leadership of the NRA announced that it was retreating from politics and that it was moving its headquarters from Washington, D.C., where there was a building, sportsmanship and training were on the front of the building. They were moving to Colorado to signal the retreat from politics. And at their convention, it was still known as the revolt in Cincinnati, the membership voted out this leadership and voted in a much more dogmatic, much more ideological and intense leadership, and they reconstituted themselves around this constitutional right. And they call themselves now the oldest civil rights organization in the United States. And if you go to the NRA headquarters in Virginia, you go into the lobby, and on the wall, not surprisingly, is the text of the Second Amendment, except they've edited out the part about the militia. They just have two dots. They don't even have three dots. <laughs> it ju they just cut that part out. And so they waged a long-term campaign. They started with scholarships. Can I pause you there? Why? Why did that happen? People love to demonize the NRA if you're a certain type of person. And some people hail the NRA if you're another type of person. So I want to get to what, what was going on in the heads of leadership then. Why launch this program and this agenda? Well, I mean, I think in terms of as a strategy, you know, a lot of them really deeply believed it. And they understood that it was much better to be fighting for a constitutional right and freedom than on the terrain that the gun issue in the wake of the Kennedy assassination, the King assassination, had been fought on. So are you saying that their goals did not change, they just adopted a new rhetorical strategy, or were the goals different too? They, the goal became much more maximalist and much more, uh, as Charlton Heston, the later president of the NRA, said, you know, you'll pry my gun from my hands when you, you'll get my, my gun from hand, my right? gold de cold <laughs> dead fingers. Um, they said no gun laws, that any gun law is a violation of my freedom of individual rights. And I really think it happened 
as part of an overall backlash uh, that saw a lot of big traditional American institutions turn way to the right, whether it was the business lobbies in the Chamber of Commerce or you had the sagebrush rebellion at the same time out in the western states on public lands. You had a real revolt against government. And this was part of it. And became, it used to be that the NRA was backed by Democrats and Republicans. John Dingell, who recently died, was a big NRA supporter. Uh, he was a Democratic congressman from Michigan. The NRA became a much more ideologically conservative organization and really part of a very tightly woven political operation on the right. At the same time, it sort of shrunk in terms of its political base. It gained in political power. How does that work? It gained in political power in part because it got some scalps. It took down some members of Congress. It showed that its voters were intense and passionate and willing to vote just on that. And whenever I go around speaking about this, very often people ask, um, well, isn't this about money? Isn't this the campaign contributions the NRA gives? Or isn't even isn't this just the gun companies? And I really don't think that's true. I, I may be wrong, but I really think it's the intense passion of this shrinking but increasingly vocal minority of people. The, the number of people who own guns, first of all, gun crime, even as we're focused on mass shootings and the fact that we have way more guns in this country per capita than anywhere else and more gun deaths. But gun crime is actually down along with all other crime. Right. Um, the number of people who own guns is way down. Fewer people serve in the military. Fewer people hunt. The, the smaller the rural areas are, the fewer people have this traditional way of life. But the fewer people who have guns have way more of them. They're like arsenals. They have many more assault weapons, many more weapons of mass destruction in effect. Gun ownership has become less of a tradition and more of an ideological statement. So then we get to the Supreme Court case that we've been mentioning and that people talk about, which was only 11 years ago, I think in 2008, District of Columbia versus Heller. And Justice Scalia wrote the majority opinion, which rejected all of your reasoning and all of your scholarship about here, here. the debate on the Second Amendment and basically said that it does confer an individual right. Well, he did reject it. He rejected, he, he basically skipped over the part about the militia just the same way the NRA does in its lobby in the version of, of the- He's on the court, so it he's on the has court. some force. Heller was, in 2008, it was the first time that the U.S. Supreme Court ever ruled that the Second Amendment reflected an individual right to gun ownership for self-protection for anything other than militia service. And, you know, it followed decades of first scholarship and then moving public opinion. And you saw in the polls, people began to think, hey, this is an individual right. And the organs of government began to change their opinion. The Justice Department changed its opinion. And it was only at the end of decades of this kind of changing of the public mind did they go to court. And at that point, the decision kind of fell like a ripe apple from the tree. It wasn't ultimately that controversial. Scalia said this was his great originalist opinion. And it was five to four, and it said, yes, it is an individual right. It was relating to ownership of a handgun in the home for self-protection. It's right. so very different from your musket right. for militia. But it's service. a small core principle. Let me ask you this. Take it outside of a discussion of what the Second Amendment meant and what the law says and what the framers intended. And just ask this question. What is wrong with there being an enshrined principle that you know a country, namely America, can choose to adopt, that every American has an inviolable right 
in some limited way to have a firearm for self-protection. Is there something wrong with that value or principle? I don't think there is. In other words, we, that is a pretty deeply ingrained American view. Right. We are a nation of individualists. We, we believe in people having the right to protect themselves and their families. And that's not at odds with having strong gun laws. I thought that uh, Scalia in the Heller decision, in claiming that that was based on what the founders wanted, that was the part that was really not really right. accurate. So you object to the reasoning, but you don't, you don't object as you sit here to the principle that that can be a reasonable, inviolable right. We, we think that we have a right to protect ourselves, and uh, it's not, it doesn't bother me that people in one way or another have a right to protect themselves, especially in their home. But that is not at all at odds. And so the, the, in that sense, there's an individual right of gun ownership. Again, that doesn't mean that that's what James Madison thought he was putting into the Constitution at the time, but we've expanded our notion of rights in a lot of realms since then, but always along with responsibilities, always along with public safety and protection. And even the Heller decision said, yes, it's an individual right, but nothing in here should be construed to mean that you can't have strong gun laws. And it listed a bunch of different types of existing gun laws or traditional laws, or if there's an unusually dangerous weapon. You know, Scalia embraced the concept of gun regulation explicitly in Heller. In a very explicit way. And... At the time, it was a big deal that the court stated this individual right. It seemed like a constitutional earthquake. But what happened afterwards? There were hundreds of cases, dozens of rulings by courts all across the country interpreting what this new doctrine meant. And overwhelmingly, they upheld gun laws. They said, yes, it's an individual right. Some of them grudgingly, some of them enthusiastically. But society also has a right to protect itself. And... There were some instances where things were, uh, if they went too far, were struck down. But uh, basically, the, the lower courts, meaning lower federal courts and state courts all over the country, uh, said, yeah, it's an individual right, and that's great, but you can still have strong gun laws. And that's been the case for the past decade. And the question is, will it stay that way? So Heller, which a lot of people don't like, wasn't really the death knell of gun regulation, as you point out. It actually gave some cover to some folks. And so I want to ask you, what the practical consequences are of the current state of the law in the wake of Heller. So it essentially says you have this inviolable right for self-protection by having a firearm in your home. Does that mean that if a state decided that based on its studies, findings, that the amount of robberies or burglaries that were prevented and the amount of self-protection that actually happened because of this right was X, you know, 10 robberies foiled, 17 homes protected because of these incidents, but on the other hand, uh, hypothetically, you know, 4,000 children were killed by accidental gunshot wounds because they found a, a non-secured firearm in the home that was ostensibly there to protect the home. And so the, the state decides in that particular instance, in the course of one year, 17 lives ostensibly saved. And again, I'm making these numbers up. 4,000 lives lost. We're going to ban all firearms. We're going to ban ownership of all firearms. That would be struck down immediately, Right. I think it would be struck down because, because of Heller. Because of Heller, because it's a ban and it's out of proportion with the, what the courts have done, as they do with most constitutional rights, like the First Amendment. They say, well, there's, there's a fundamental right. They ask, is the right affected by the law? Uh, 
And then is this a narrowly tailored way to deal with it? And they don't use what's called, generally speaking, they have not used what's called strict scrutiny in the First Amendment context that it has to be really passed through a very narrow set of criteria. They've used other standards to balance these things, and they have not allowed bans on some things, but they've allowed very extensive restrictions, regulations, and things like that. One of the challenges is that one of the things the NRA succeeded in doing was cutting off the ability of the National Institutes of Health or the Center for Disease Control or federal regulators to even look at this stuff the way they do for toasters or, <laughs> or you know, let alone cars. Uh, and so that kind of data is missing just at the very moment when it might actually be most necessary and useful in the courts. So is it your view that other than this carved out territory from Heller, that other gun regulations are fair game and it just depends on what is able to be passed in the state or federally? I mean, it seems to me that the red flag laws and background checks and assault weapon bans, those don't rise or fall on the constitutional question. Well, I think that, and most other judges would agree with you on that. And the question now is, do the justices on the U.S. Supreme Court agree with that? The Supreme Court, during this period when all these gun cases were being adjudicated in federal courts all across the country, the Supreme Court turned down every opportunity to hear another Second Amendment case. They did a case in 2010 to apply Heller to the states. But after that, they turned down every opportunity. And nobody really knew why. Was it because um, Justice Kennedy didn't want to do it? Nobody knew where the votes were. But whatever the reason was, they chose not to. Well, now there's a new majority on the Supreme Court. And you mentioned a few things. I think everybody agrees that background checks certainly don't fly in the face of Heller. It's pretty explicitly the case that you ought to be able to have the ability to make sure that people who shouldn't have guns legally don't have them. Red flag laws, I, I, I'm interested in what kinds of constitutional issues come up there because, you know, these are, as I understand it, in 17 states with the support of the NRA. And they basically let the government come in and take away your gun without, you know, necessarily that much due process. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's some litigation around what kind of uh, rules there are about what, what, what the government can do. But the assault weapons ban, which again... The reason the assault weapons ban has not been on the table is politics, not the Second Amendment. But so that's why public sentiment comes right back into it now. That's right. But uh, 10 courts of appeals have said around the country that when states, for example, pass an assault weapons ban, it's constitutional because it's so dangerous. One judge issued a very strident dissent from that in a case called Heller too, Brett Kavanaugh. He said that, in fact, an assault weapons ban, the D.C. assault weapons ban, was not constitutional, that it was not appropriate to balance the individual right with public safety, that you have to, under Heller, look at history, and you got to go back and look and see what the rule was back in the old days. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Before there was an assault weapon. Yeah, and I like, think it would not be impossible to imagine that this was basically his essay for his job application um, to signal, hey, look how pro-gun I am folks think of me for the Supreme Court, but it was a, um, it was really outside the mainstream of what Republican and Democratic nominated judges have said on this. And now for the first time, the Supreme Court this year took a Second Amendment case. Um, it's the first one they've, they've heard since uh, 2010. And remind us what the issue is there? It's a quirky, weird issue from New York. Uh, it was a re 
regulation put in place by the Giuliani mayoralty saying that you could not, I'm going to get it wrong, but basically you couldn't bring your gun to your second home out of New York City. You couldn't transport your gun if you had a license to your second home out in the countryside. So luxury problem. Yeah, it was. I don't suspect it was the biggest uh, problem facing New York at the time. And um, what has happened is that the Supreme Court took the case and New York City changed the rule. And I believe New York State passed a law changing the rule. And so the question now is, since the case is in fact moot, whether the Supreme Court is going to go forward with hearing this case or not. There are debates that take place in the Supreme Court and other courts around the land and in legislatures. But, you know, there's another place where debates take place. And these also help shape public sentiment. That's been an important theme throughout our conversation. And those debates happen uh, in neighborhoods and on campuses and at workplaces where, you know, a very terrible thing happens like El Paso. And I imagine like a lot of places, people come to work where they go to family events and they begin talking about these things and debating these things. Are there certain arguments that are more persuasive to average people than other arguments. I, I keep hearing people talk about, well, cars are, are regulated. You need a license to drive a car and you need to register your car and all of that. Why not the same with guns? Is, is, that, a, is that a good argument or is that a weak argument? Um, you know, I think it's a pretty good argument. Uh, but, but there's no constitutional right to own a car. Well, but there is a constitutional right to travel. We now have more people die from guns in the United States than from cars. And that's partly because we have 30,000 or more people die a year from guns, many of them suicides. Um, but it's also because cars have gotten safer. used to be a lot more. And there is a considered to be a constitutional right to travel. They didn't lower that death rate from cars by banning cars. They regulated them. They put in airbags. They put in seatbelts, driver's licenses, safety rules, and speed limits, and all these things. And people still have their cars and have the right to have a car. But public sentiment played a role in that also, right? At the beginning, my understanding is that car companies fought all these things like seatbelts and in particular. The first, the first paper I ever wrote in college as a freshman in 1986 was about how car companies were opposed to the airbag. And then following it from a distance in the years since, partly what happened was consumers, people who bought cars, began to care a lot more about safety and began to care a lot more about death rates and about airbags. And all of a sudden now, everyone's on the same page. And, you know, Volvo can... People bought market. Volvos instead of Chevrolets. And, and so they got, yeah. they got with the program. So public sentiment came around to the view that, yeah, it's not an infringement on our liberty. This is a thing that we really want as consumers. And we're prepared to pay a little bit more for a safer car. What's the equivalent of that that can happen with respect to guns? Well, you're exactly right. Not long ago, I worked for Ralph Nader and at a time when the auto industry was fighting tooth and nail to keep airbags out of cars, as crazy as that. Now there's like 35 in. airbags in every yeah. car. <laughs> yeah, and it's, a, and it's a selling point. There's a lot of things people can do now, even apart from urging Congress or state legislators to act. There's consumer power toward retailers. Do you keep guns out of your stores? There's criticism of Walmart in the wake of this massacre at a Walmart, people realize that Walmart is, I believe, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, seller of guns in the United States. Should they stop? Uh, well, in the wake of El Paso, they chose to stop selling violent video games, but not <laughs> guns. I didn't even ask so you about I, that. It's, <laughs> video games are not the problem, right, Michael? Video games are not the problem. They watch more violent video games in Japan than they do in the United States, but they don't somehow have the same gun death rate that we have. You know, I think a strong case could be made that Walmart should stop. There's also gun owners. 
if you look at guns, the technological developments that have that have happened in the way guns are manufactured, there really aren't that many, and they tend to be more about making them more lethal, having bigger magazines or other things like that, things to make them more exciting in that way. But there are all kinds of safety devices that could be put in guns to make them so that children can't use them, or smart guns that only recognize your fingerprint or your facial recognition, all the things that smartphones have. And whenever companies have tiptoed up to doing any of that, there's actually been a rebellion by the most active gun owners, meaning the NRA, when I believe it was Smith & Wesson in the late 1990s uh, made a settlement in the wake of the tobacco cases uh, to have trigger locks and child safety things. They faced a boycott organized by the NRA. And so there's also a need for gun owners to step up and say, you know, we have a, we have, we want our rights protected. We believe in this, but we are citizens too. And we have, we have a role to play. What's going on with the NRA? Is it on its last legs? You keep hearing scandal after scandal and there's issues relating to money and Wayne LaPierre needing 17 houses and apparently expensive suits. What is going on with the power of the NRA and the, that organization generally? It, you know, uh, it's a good thing they don't have guns because they're, you know, really fighting it out and suing each other. I mean, the NRA seems to have become, there's a, there's a saying, and I'm going to get it wrong, but, you know, many things start as a cause and end up as a racket. And uh, it seems as though the leadership of the NRA wound up milking this cash cow for their own personal use. There's a lot of investigations going on of their possible violation of nonprofit law, questions about uh, where they got the money that they used to suddenly spend a ton of money on behalf of Donald Trump after not spending money in presidential elections up until now. Um, they seem to be falling apart and flying apart. However, that doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be a permanent thing. Again, there's an intensity on the part of their supporters that can't be denied. But the notion that they are this... Um, fearsome, unbeatable machine that terrifies politicians in the dark of night, I think should take a hit here. And I think if you can see some real action on some of these gun issues at a moment when the NRA is falling apart, I think that the kind of the optics of the politics could change. And you also have, you asked about what are some of the arguments that are most compelling. Women and their increasingly important role in politics, this is a very gendered issue. And it's really a sort of a shrinking group of white men who are the people who are pushing for gun rights, strong gun rights, and they're a smaller and smaller part of the electorate, even as the Supreme Court may be poised to lock that view in for longer and longer in the Constitution. So I'm, I wouldn't be utterly pessimistic, but it's hardly the case that this fight is over. Top two gun reforms that should be passed into law if you could get it done. I'm no expert on the actual question of what would make the most sense. What I hear from folks is a real background check system would get a lot done. The question on assault weapons, the assault weapons ban that was passed in federal law and during the crime bill of 1994, and at the time the crime bill was passed, that was the controversial provision in terms of public debate. And now it's the one that Joe Biden and others yeah. point to <laughs> to save themselves from criticism. Right. Right. It was not foolproof. It was full of loopholes. But there's some strong evidence that mass shootings in particular did go down during the time when the assault weapons ban was in effect and have gone up. 
I think that one of the things that's really noteworthy, and again, I don't pretend to know what the right answer is on these things, is that you've started to see people like Cory Booker and other people talk about licensing of gun owners or even registration of certain kinds of guns. These were things that were off the table. Is that, is that effective politically? Um, does that freak out the large number of people who, who own guns and believe in gun safety and they begin to worry, well, this, this is going to be the first step along the road to confiscation? That, I'm not saying that that's true. Yeah, no, and, and, and that is, and in the past, that's what the politics of the assault weapons ban has been also. And that is where I think, I hope, the Heller decision and other decisions like that can draw a line and say, hey, look, you know, the Supreme Court has made it clear. The black helicopters can't come in and confiscate all your guns, even if, even if the deep state wanted to. It's unconstitutional. It's not going to happen. Plus, we have almost 400 million guns in the United States. That's just not going to happen. Um, so you say that, and I'm going to say something you know, sort of pessimistic. Even if you cut back on a lot of things right now and, and passed a lot of laws, there are 400 million guns in the country, the only country in the world, I think, that has more guns than people. What can you do about that? In other words, is it too late, given the existing proliferation of firearms in the hands of Americans? It's challenging because guns last for a long time. And uh, the technology is pretty simple, and guns that are sold today will still be working decades from now. And so I don't think anybody can pretend that there's an easy answer to this. I think it's a lot of social and cultural changes. Again, we've seen gun violence go down in the United States along with crime generally. If we were having this conversation three decades ago, you know, the crime rate in the United States quadrupled from 1960 to 1990. And then since then, it's been declining steadily. And nobody can really tell you exactly why that happened. We at the Brennan Center have done a lot of studies that make it pretty clear to us, at least, that the massive level of incarceration that we have is not the reason. But there are a whole bunch of, of other things that had something to do with that. And so gun violence is broadly the same way. And, and some of it is generational change. Some of it is people's expectations. But I think getting us into a more normal political space where you can have real discussions of what kinds of gun safety rules actually work you can have debate over what makes sense, what doesn't make sense, what evidence there is, without it instantly becoming this kind of highly polarized, you know, individual freedom versus uh, uh, fascistic government debate. If we can get to that point, then I think a lot of progress can be made. What's in lots of people's minds is the gun issue in the Second Amendment, but there are lots of other things that the Brennan Center works on and that you were very expert on, like democracy generally and the right to vote. And one of the great things people should be thankful for you on is how much energy you've devoted to that. What would you say is the biggest obstacle to participation in our democracy today? There are a lot of obstacles. There are a lot of ways that people are not engaged, uh, things that you wouldn't necessarily expect, such as weak political parties or people not being active in labor unions and churches. But it's also the case that the way our system runs, the way we run elections in this country, is a surprisingly significant obstacle to people's democratic participation. And unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are trying to make it harder for people to vote and make the elections less meaningful and less representative. Um, and unfortunately, that's become a pretty clear political strategy to restrict the vote and uh, try to gain advantage as a result. 
So, so what do we need to fix? First off, probably the most important reform we can make right now has to do with voter registration. We have one of the worst voter registration systems in the world. One of the only places where people fall off the rolls when they move, where there's tons of errors, where millions of people show up to vote every year and find that they're not on the rolls the way they thought they were. We all kind of take it for granted. But other democracies don't do it this way. And there's a reform that the Brennan Center helped develop called automatic voter registration, which says if you're eligible to vote, basically you're, you're registered to vote if you interact with a government agency, unless you choose to not be registered. And it's now in 16 states and the District of Columbia. And if it were... Are those, are those blue states or red states or both? Both. Oh. Both. Uh, it passed... In Illinois, which is a blue state, but it passed unanimously in the legislature. In Alaska, voters voted for it, even as they were voting for Donald Trump for president. West Virginia, um, as well as California and a lot of other more traditionally progressive states. And if it were fully implemented, it would add 50 million people to the rolls permanently. It would curb the potential for fraud and improve election security because you have a strong list of, of who's eligible to vote, and it costs less. So this this would make a big difference. So who's against it? A lot of it's been inertia, and a lot of it has been uh, at the federal level, for example. This was one of the items that was in H.R. 1, this very significant sweeping democracy reform legislation that passed the House of Representatives. H.R. 1 has automatic voter registration. It has small donor public financing for campaigns based on the system we have in New York City to make it so ordinary people have a, a louder voice in that system. It has a national requirement for redistricting commissions to draw district lines so that you have real competition around the country and, and representation of all communities. Um, and Mitch McConnell is blocking this from coming up in the Senate. Uh, a lot of this is the kind of general resistance to having anything that would strengthen democracy and make it more widely available. So, you know, I would say automatic voter registration, uh, restoring the strength of the Voting Rights Act, real redistricting reform so that you don't have the, the rigging of the system that we see with gerrymandering and real campaign finance reform, all those which are widely popular would transform the politics of our country. I really believe that. And... This is all going to come to a head in this election. How so? A few ways. The fight to vote is going to be really significant in determining how the election is fought. You have purges of voting rolls all over the country. Brennan Center just did a study showing that 17 million people were purged from the voting rolls in the last two years. Now, some of those people were kicked off the rolls because they moved or something like that. We don't know fully. But a lot of them were eligible voters, and the rate was much higher in the states with a history of discrimination based on race under the Voting Rights Act. It's very troubling, very suspicious. You have the threat of Russian hacking and other security threats to voting machines that are going to make people really worry that the results of the election aren't going to be right. The urgent need to buy new voting machines to strengthen our defenses. We needed to do this anyway, but now we know that there really are... You know, it was a building in St. Petersburg, Russia, of, of hackers in there trying to mess with our elections and the, and the Russian government and who knows who else. So there's a lot of things that could really affect people's confidence in the election. Um, and uh, one thing that is different is the candidates now on the Democratic side in particular are finally talking about this issue as a reform that they want to enact 
as a top priority should they be elected. So one of the amazing jobs you've had during your career, and I wanted to close with this, was you were director of speech writing for William Jefferson Clinton. You were responsible for overseeing and writing, drafting, editing. And back then, there had been three Republican presidential terms, sort of like what you were talking about with the NRA. The feeling was you got to talk a certain way and walk a certain way if you're going to get elected as a Democrat. I, I really think he thought of himself as a progressive president in a conservative country. Um, one time, privately, as we were working on one of those State of the Union addresses, he said, you know, FDR saved capitalism from itself. He didn't make that up. That's a well-worn observation. He said, FDR saved capitalism from itself. Our job is to save government from its own excesses so it can be seen as a progressive force again. And so it was a very different time. I, I would argue that a lot of the things that were done then created the conditions for people being willing to use government again now in a different way. You know, this is a challenge Joe Biden has of having to explain and defend policies, arguments, and decisions from decades ago when we're living in the here and now and people understandably have different views in the wake of the financial collapse, in the wake of Donald Trump and demographic change and everything else. It's a different time. Here's what's stunning to me. There's so many things stunning to me about the way that Donald Trump uses his, his bully pulpit and all the various podiums that he speaks from. Every president up to now that I can remember in my lifetime, Democrat or Republican, whether you're talking about Reagan or the Bushes or Obama or Clinton, and specifically we'll ask you this with respect to your experience overseeing speech writing for President Clinton, the rhetoric always, not always, but most of the time, particularly at key junctures, sought to expand the base of support and sought to speak to people who may not have voted for that person, but who you aspired to have vote for you. And so the language was often reaching out across the aisle in whatever way. Republicans and Democrats both have done that. How conscious a decision was that when you were writing for President Clinton? In other words, who was your audience? How much of the how much did you think about, well, I, wa I want to make sure that we're saying things that our supporters, the people who voted for us, will agree with and applaud and be happy about? And how much were you thinking about the people that you might want to get the next time around versus what this president seems to do, President Trump? It was very conscious, and you're right, that it isn't just something that Bill Clinton did, uh, but George W. Bush talking about com being a compassionate conservative. Or um, You use that bully pulpit to try to speak to a wider audience than your own core supporters. And the way Clinton did it, and most of these presidents have done it, is to try to appeal in values terms to what might be unifying or cross-cutting themes that pull people together. A lot of uh, Clinton's speeches revolved around, as he described it, the values of opportunity, responsibility, and community. And that sort of just sounds like a lot of blah, blah, blah. But it actually was a significant tweak of the Democratic message to talk about opportunity, but also responsibility. Um, and that led to policies like the earned income tax credit, which was a working poor people's tax credit that's been an extraordinary success in lifting people out of poverty. Um, presidents are very conscious of that. And when we were working with Clinton on these State of the Union addresses, we were always very, he was always very aware, especially of which policy, which argument would appeal to who and which would get the Democrats on their feet and which would reach out to Republicans. And it, it drove uh, his opponents crazy and it drove a lot of his own supporters crazy because he was not speaking like, in his mind, like an orthodox Democrat. And just the same way George W. Bush at the beginning of his term before 9-11 sort of reshaped everything, George W. Bush also uh, had to reach out rhetorically. Bill Clinton 
when he was elected in 1992, only got 43% of the vote. And he didn't get a majority the second time, even though he won handily. Only Barack Obama of Democrats has had a majority twice in decades. So it is a different time. And of course, even Obama, of course, for all kinds of reasons, very, very consciously reached out in rhetorical terms to broaden his argument so that it could speak to the core patriotic values that we are rooted in that preamble to the Declaration of Independence uh, that all we're all created equal, the civic creed. And what's so depressing and startling about Trump is that he has substituted for this great American presidential tradition of calling out those better angels this kind of blood and soil white nationalist language. It's hard to just give it any other word than that. If you look at his inaugural address, the one that talked about American carnage. Yeah, I remember it. It did not mention the Constitution. It didn't use the word liberty. It didn't do these things that think of Ronald Reagan or Clinton or any of the other presidents speak to in that kind of sacramental moment. And, you know, I do worry uh, as somebody who had the experience of working I don't want to sound like one of those old guys, you know, talking about the glory of the presidency. And, but in fact, it's, it, it's a pretty significant responsibility when you're anywhere near it. And I do wor- worry that this office that has been this driver of a lot of progress in the country's history is broken by this man. And as you and I have talked about and worked on, anytime there's an abuse of power by a president, and it happens. It hasn't just been this president. There's always a response. And part of that is a policy response. Part of that is putting in place things to fix the norms or restore the norms. But one of the norms that can't really be addressed by laws are kind of what the presidency means to the country and how presidents speak to the country. And now we've got... I I pity the people who have to compile the books of presidential speeches, which are done by the National Archives... Well, luckily, there's a program to do that for Twitter. Yeah. So it's, well, it's a little bit easier. There's a Twitter feed that takes his tweets and makes them look as though they are official presidential statements. And it's going to be an interesting challenge for whoever has that job. Um, Michael Waldman, you are the president of an organization that does so much good, and it's called the Brennan Center for Justice. Thank you for your service. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you for what you do. The conversation continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. This week, the bipartisan and historical tradition of gerrymandering, what it was like writing words for a president who so often went off book, and Michael Waldman's definition of justice. To get the Stay Tuned bonus and the exclusive weekly Cafe Insider podcast, go to cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Michael Waldman. Tweet your questions at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call 669-247-7338 and leave me a message. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews help new listeners find the show. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Aaron Dalton. And the cafe team is Carla Pierini, Julia Doyle, Calvin Lord, Vinay Basti, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music 
is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. <laughs>